Hello, and welcome to King's Road Pro Wrestling. That's right, King's Road Pro Wrestling. It was time to ditch the old name, King of Pro Wrestling. It was something that I was never entirely comfortable with, but thought that it made sense at the time, considering that we were going to record material directly related to New Japan Pro Wrestling. It fit. It doesn't anymore. Now, some might argue that King's Road Pro Wrestling might not fit as much if I'm going to cover things outside of the 90s All Japan style that I've been focusing on in this new series, but it felt like it could cover what I wanted it to. It seemed right, and plus it meant that I didn't have to change too much or drift too far away from the title that most were familiar with. So I'm saying this up front. King's Road Pro Wrestling is the new name of this podcast. It will be reflected going forward at Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, and also in the new logo that you'll see uh, very shortly. But I wanted to get ahead of all that and announce it here on this episode, King's Road Pro Wrestling. I'm your host, Sam Fain, and it's apropos that I am indeed retitling the podcast to King's Road Pro Wrestling because, of course, today brings the long-awaited Long time coming, long researched episode of King's Road, an all Japan pro wrestling retrospective. This is chapter two. Chapter one was released in May of last year, and it's been a long road since then. For a variety of reasons that I've discussed on the podcast before, it became very difficult for me to create new content, new material, especially stuff that wasn't just a reaction to something I'd seen or related to Filsinger Games. Which brings me to my first thank you of many that there will be on this episode. I want to give a special shout out to Todd Jerschel and Mike Molesky. Now the entire Filsinger Games team, whether it be the the Legends team, or the Indies team, or even Tom Filsinger himself, have been nothing but welcoming and supportive and inspiring. But Todd and Mike in particular helped to make me a part of the team, make me a part of the family, and made sure that I kept creating and scratching an itch that has been important to me since as long as I can remember, even outside of podcasting or wrestling-related content. I'm deeply indebted to them and the space that they gave me to contribute to Phil Singer Games and, again, continue creating content for something that I love. Now, obviously, I'm no longer creating content for Phil Singer Games on this podcast. You can find all of that over on Roll Up, the official Phil Singer Games podcast, which is indeed hosted by yours truly, along with Todd and Mike. Now, if you've not yet listened to Chapter 1, which is possible, uh, I would certainly recommend going back and listening to King's Road, a 90s All Japan retrospective, Chapter 1. Again, that was a May episode. Uh, I have indeed reposted links to it recently on Twitter, as well as over at the Philsinger Games Pro Boards, which you can find at philsingergames.proboards.com. There's a section under there for podcasts, and you should see it close to the top of the list if you do go over there. Uh, or just take a look through the tweets and, uh, I'm going to actually sticky that one. So you can start off with that episode if you've not yet listened to it. In that episode, I started off by thanking two people in particular, Matt Charlton and Eddie Kingston. Matt has been invaluable, both as a friend and a resource, uh, even to an extent, I suppose, a collaborator. And I'm indebted to him a great deal as well. His friendship during this time, our kind of modern-day pen-pal relationship, has been extremely important and gratifying to me. 
He's a great human being. He's an excellent artist. Uh, he's produced two stellar books that are essential for any Japanese pro wrestling fan. Uh, J Crowned, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, if you haven't read them, go out, grab them right away. You won't be sorry. Um, his artwork, of course, has populated my Twitter timeline for the past few years. At Shining Wizard DS, uh, he seeks to put out a piece every single day and... It has been an incredible journey through um, wrestling history as well as almost like a newspaper. You know, you wake up the day after a match has happened and there Matt has created a piece of artwork to capture a moment in that match. Um, So you get uh, just a wonderful amount of content simply from following his Twitter page. And he's hard at work at other projects that I'm sure he'll want to share with you soon. Eddie Kingston... um, might seem like kind of an odd person to thank as I don't really know him personally. Uh, I've exchanged, you know, a few tweets with him. I did get the chance to interview him on podcast row at all in. um, And I have seen him wrestle many times here in Chicago at AAW and spoken to him very briefly. One thing that kept coming up in every interaction that I have had with Eddie Kingston has been the 90s All Japan. He's a huge fan. You can see it in his wrestling style. And at one point, we even talked about potentially doing an interview together where we would just talk 90s All Japan. I told him about this idea that I had to do a retrospective on that decade back at All In, and he thought it was a great idea, and you know he wanted to take part in it. Obviously, some things have happened for Eddie along the way, which are nothing but great for him that kind of prevent him from taking part in this in any active way and have maybe put him just a little bit out of my reach. But I still want to say thank you to him for the inspiration and support that he provided because it's important. And I, I think when you get someone who is in the business, who does this for a living, who has such high respect for this particular era and basically gives you the, 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 the nudge on the shoulder and says, go do it, man, you, you can't help but take it seriously. So thank you to Eddie Kingston. I also want to thank a few people who I'm indebted to, not necessarily for this specific episode, but certainly for helping me to call resources for future episodes, and a couple of little things that do play a part in this episode. Uh, First of all, Hasami, at H-I-5-A-M-E on Twitter. Anyone who has followed her uh, Twitter knows that she is definitely an authority on Noah in particular, but obviously uh, that extends to the Four Pillars and All Japan 90s as well. She is an invaluable resource to the community, not only for her Noah content, but also for her Four Pillars account, which is The Four Pillars One. Some amazing content there, of course, focusing on the four pillars, Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada, and Tawe, and has helped to provide some wonderful context for a couple of the things that I'm going to talk about even today. So certainly follow her. Uh, She's absolutely incredible. And then I also wanted to make sure to note that Carrie Silken, former owner of Ring of Honor, has helped to provide some really wonderful context for me um, that that we won't really get into on this series, or at least not for quite some time. But he's also helped me to get some context with uh, other instances uh, along the way and has been a supporter of this podcast for a very long time, which is surprising to me. Uh, And of course, you can find him over his podcast, Last Stop Pin Station with Ian Riccoboni. It's just a hell of a lot of fun. They focus on things outside of wrestling, including rock and roll, the New York City scene during the 70s, uh, all, all sorts of just wonderful side trips and sidesteps down uh, a history of entertainment and of course lots of pro wrestling stuff as well so worth checking out last stop pin station 
there's a lot of other people to thank. Um, the Ditch, if you know, you know, uh, and certainly some other resources for video content that I have used over the years. Indeed, some of them 20 years ago when all of this started and I first started watching uh, All Japan. Over 20 years ago, I bought my first All Japan tape in 1999, and uh, I've been watching and consuming you know, that era of All Japan specifically pretty much ever since. Um, there's a wonderful amount of resources even on the internet, some of which you know might be a little back alley, but they get the job done. And uh, numerous message boards, obviously, um, the Wrestling Observer has been a huge resource as well. And there have been numerous things that I've seen on Twitter or Reddit or message boards out there that I, I can't name everyone, but certainly want to at least give a thank you to those that might remain unnamed. Any mistakes that are here are mine, mine alone. Um, and please feel free to call me out on them, you know, help us grow, help us learn, help us make sure that we're, we're, we're getting the right information out there. Mistakes happen. Accountability is important. And I think that we can obviously, you know, using that kind of accountability can grow to be even stronger. Uh, also wanted to say thank you to anyone who's taken the time to listen to the first chapter or any episode of this podcast, for, quite frankly. Without listeners, I'm just a guy talking into a mic, and sometimes that's exactly what it feels like. But the fact that there are people out there that are listening and deriving enjoyment and, and maybe even you know educating themselves with this podcast is exactly what I want to do. It's hard to consider myself a historian. I don't. But uh, I you know have been told by other folks that if you're out there and you're trying to spread that information, you can kind of join their ranks. Um, again, I don't consider myself one at all, even with that sort of thing said, but here I am just trying to do my part and make sure that important moments in wrestling history are not forgotten. That's enough of me talking about the things that you didn't necessarily come here to listen to. It's time again, at last for chapter two of King's Road, a nineties, all Japan pro wrestling retrospective. When we left things in episode one, Genichiro Tenru was at the top of the mountain, having defeated Jumbo Siruta for the Triple Crown. For the remainder of 1989, Tenru would continue his feud with Siruta, engaging in multiple six-man and regular tag team matches, more often than not coming out on the winning side. His first title defense would be against Terry Gordy in September of that year, a match he would win in under 15 minutes. Now, that's not to disparage Gordy. The match actually had quite a bit of parody in the early goings, but it certainly wasn't a, you know, 20-plus-minute classic like some of the others that we've talked about. Gordy wasn't ready for the title. Yet. And we'll get back to him on a future episode. All was not roses for Tenru, though. And on October the 11th, 1989, he faced a challenge for his triple crown from Jumbo Siruta once again. It's worth noting that at the top of this match, there was quite a bit of pomp and circumstance, the reading off of the titles, the ceremonial giving of flowers. But after that pomp and circumstance, we quickly descended into disrespect, something that was absolutely no stranger to these matches between Tinru and Saruta. Indeed, it was kind of the crux of their feud. Now, the match begins with Jumbo being shoved into the corner. He's not happy about that. Slaps Tinru on the chest. Tenru, however, has the jumping knee scouted, avoids the first, much to the crowd's awe. He blocks a second attempt and lays in a chop that fires up Saruta even more. Jumbo then blocks the Enzigiri. These two know each other so well at this point. Their big moves will prove ineffective, at least this early in the match. They're going to have to change things up. We get a sick cravat from Jumbo, and after some groundwork with the cravat, Tenru gets up and backs into the corner to break the hold. 
Jumbo responds with a big elbow in the corner, and Tenru fires up with a kick. Now Tenru gets the side headlock and takes Jumbo down. They're so evenly matched at this point. Tenru even shugs off a, a big shin breaker to keep the headlock on. The way they work these holds adds so much drama. There's always movement, no matter how small or subtle. Something is happening. This is action, not a rest hold. Jumbo escapes and works the arm, even attempting a cross arm breaker. There's just so much heat between these two, and it's evident in every little thing that they do. Tenru even heals it up with a kick to Jumbo's head in the ropes. Another cheap shot sees Jumbo push the ref down and begins slapping Tenru before hitting a big knee and then kicking him out of the ring. He assaults Tenru with a chair. Just so much hate. The crowd is even now booing Jumbo. There's a big boot back inside for a two count. Some forearm shots from Jumbo skirt the line between a forearm and closed fist. It's just such great stuff. You really have to watch these matches. You can't you know, be looking at your phone or paying attention to anything else because the little things pay off so big. It adds a lot of drama. And the ref, it has to be said, plays his part perfectly. Tenru at this point is literally fighting from the bottom, throwing kicks while on his back, allowing Jumbo to grab a toe hold. He then flips it over to a crab hold, and Tenru is in trouble at this point. Jumbo looks firmly on top. He attempts a butterfly suplex, but Tenru tries to block it before it's successful, and Jumbo gets a two count. The Jumbo charges into the corner but gets met with a knee, and the momentum changes. Tenru starts kicking him on the ground, hits the enziguri for a close near fall. The pendulum is firmly swung the other way and Tenru brutalizes him in the corner with some chops and an unorthodox powerbomb, to say the least, for a two-count. Jumbo rolls outside, but Tenru has no problem following. Jumbo goes over the guardrail into the first row, and Tenru is throwing chairs. It's interesting at this point because when he picks up the chair, he actually picks up three at one time because the chairs are connected to one another, and he throws them over. It's a pretty incredible moment, honestly. They both make it back to the ring to break the count, but Tenru kicks Jumbo back outside. He levels a big kick to Jumbo's face from the apron, and the champ starts to look a little bit more dominant. He's clearly fighting dirty at this point, but Jumbo had it coming. Tenru grows up top and hits a cross body, but Jumbo kind of rolls through and gets a two. Tenru then attacks off the ropes, but gets met with a big boot. Jumbo follows it up with a belly-to-belly for a near fall, then a Thez press off the ropes for another two count. Thez press always gets the crowd. Working for a powerbomb, Tenru is able to turn it into a back body drop. He's hurting, though. Jumbo fights back, moves Tenru to the corner. Big lariat off the ropes. Jumbo goes for a back body, but Tenru kicks him in the face. Jumbo responds with two big boots for a near fall. At this point, both men are feeling the effects of the brawl. There hasn't been a hold in ages. Tenru counters a slam with a small package for a two and then hits the enzigiri. Kick to the face and a backdrop get a two. Tenru goes for a pile driver, but Jumbo turns it into a back body and then stomps Tenru in the face. It's pretty brutal looking. Jumbo goes up top, hits a diving knee to the side of the face, and gets a two. The crowd starts to really show their appreciation. Jumbo goes up again, but Tenru knocks him from the top of the, all the way to the arena floor. Tenru goes outside, grabs a table, performs a running smash into Jumbo with it. There's this awesome pile driver spot next where uh, they're back in the ring and Jumbo tries to fight out of it, kind of does, but the exchange leads to a big backdrop driver attempt from Jumbo that actually ends up in a cover for Tenru. These guys are pouring it out. Big lariat from Tenru, backdrop driver, but Tenru gets a foot on the ropes to break the count. 
dueling chants from the crowd, it seems. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell, to be honest, but it sounds at this point like some are chanting Tenru, some are chanting Suruta, which holds true for the athletic contest that these matches kind of put on compared to your clear babyface heel dynamics. There's a big slap from Tenru, and he goes for the powerbomb, but Saruta head scissors him over to the mat and gets the three count. It, it, it actually almost looks more like a Rey Mysterio Huracan Rana. No joke. Uh, maybe without the speed, but it also looks good. It's not one of these, you know, my legs are basically open and my feet are on your shoulders, as opposed to literally being around your neck and pulling you down to the mat. It's a great spot, especially from two guys this big. The crowd seems shocked at the three count, though a portion chants Saruta's name. We've got a new champ. Tenru looks on in disbelief, then leaves the ring and heads to the back with his seconds. Now, at this point, it's a little hard to tell, but it honestly looks like some people are throwing garbage into the ring. And then, of course, moments later, you start to see streamers. It's an interesting reaction and just reinforces the way that the crowd is split between these two, although Saruta is getting quite the ovation for the win. It seems that his naysayers or detractors are going to be in the minority in this case. Regardless, we've got a new champ. The loss, however, wouldn't stop Tenru's momentum, as he and stablemate Stan Hansen would go on to win the Real World Tag League Finals, along with the All Japan Pro Wrestling World Tag Team titles from Yatsu and Saruta. They would hold the titles until March 6, 1990, dropping them to the Miracle Violence Connection, Dr. Death Steve Williams, and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. But again, the spotlight refused to move away from Tenru. He's one of the aces of the company, and he found himself challenging for the Triple Crown title once more. April 19, 1990. Now, this match gets off to an interesting start. Stan Hansen attacks his former partner, Genichiro Tenru, during his entrance. Huge heat from the crowd. He's choking Tenru in the corner with the bull rope, he hits a lariat in the corner, and Tenru looks out. But here comes Jumbo, to the rescue. He scares Hansen off by swinging one of the title belts. Hansen gets on the mic outside the ring and tells Jumbo, it's me and you. I'm the number one contender. Tenru is down on, uh, on the outside. Now, Hansen is finally called to the back, and the fans are booing him like crazy. This is a pivotal moment. Obviously, the partnership between Hansen and Tenru is over. But perhaps more importantly, Tenru has officially thrown his hat in the ring to challenge for the Triple Crown. This is something that will absolutely pay off, and it's important to keep in mind for our next episode. Tenru is hurting, and Jumbo goes to check on him. That's right, Jumbo actually goes to check on his opponent. Tenru smacks him in the face, and here we are, right back to the disrespect between these two. And it's often on display from Tenru to Saruta. It's a running theme of the feud. Tenru doesn't need Saruta anymore. That's been kind of the whole point of this feud since their partnership dissolved, in addition to the I'm better than you element that exists between them. Huge heat. Jumbo attacks even before the bell rings. The bell does ring, and after the bell rings, streamers begin to cover the ring and these two as they are just slugging it out on the mat. It's actually kind of an incredible visual. Tenru is able to avoid a knee, he misses with a lariat, turns through on a backdrop, then hits a big enzigiri and a powerbomb. These are the opening moments of the match since the bell rang. The odds have already been evened. 
what a start. It's just brilliant stuff, really. There's a side headlock that takes Jumbo to a knee. Jumbo eventually gets out and starts in with forearm shots. We've got Saruta chance coming. There's a big drop kick from Jumbo. He signals for and hits the lariat in the corner, and the crowd is just eating this up. Tenru, like I said, is hurt. Jumbo is still taking time, though, to sell the enzigiri from earlier. It's great stuff. And, and a reminder that these moves count. Even if somebody gets uh, some an explosion of offense, they're still feeling the effects from the big moves that they might have taken earlier. And it's a running theme of 90s All Japan, quite frankly. He hits the big jumping knee, gets a two. And then there's a sleeper off the ropes from Jumbo. Tenru gets in the ropes, but Jumbo refuses to break the hold. It's a really wonderful moment. The ref actually has to pull him off. There's a big body slam, followed up by a knee drop from the second rope. Worth noting here that Jumbo actually pulls down the knee pad to make that knee drop worse. Tinru gets out of a powerbomb attempt with a back body drop, but Jumbo is able to hit a big boot for a two. Body slam again, and up to the top goes Jumbo. A flying knee from the top, but it only gets a two. Tinru rolls out, and Jumbo follows. He even drops a knee from the apron. Back inside, Jumbo hits a pile driver for another near fall. Tenru's resilience is pretty incredible. Jumbo goes up top again, but this time Tenru hits a leaping enzigiri to bring him down to the mat. Both men down, crowd chanting for Saruta. Really cool stuff. Back up, Jumbo goes charging into the corner, but Tenru moves, and Saruta's knee, exposed knee, hits the buckle. Tenru follows up immediately with a knee bar, and Jumbo is in trouble. It's a great moment, wonderful psychology. Jumbo's writhing in pain on the mat. He eventually makes the rope, but the damage is done. Tenru presses his advantage with a series of kick and then kind of a Indian death leg lock. It looks great and, again, plays so perfectly into the fact that you know Tenru's just bashed his knee into the turnbuckle. Both men get back to their feet. Jumbo tries to take the advantage, but Tenru is just one step ahead. A Thez press from Jumbo is turned into a stun gun, and a near fall follows. It's the first time we've seen the Thez press not work on Tenru in this particular series of matches. Jumbo goes for the lariat. Tenru, however, hits what almost looks like a snapdragon for a two count, and then a big enzigiri. Tenru goes for the powerbomb, but Jumbo turns it over and tries for a fall. Tenru rolls through and goes for the powerbomb again. Finally, Jumbo comes out on top, hits a lariat in the corner, followed by the backdrop, but only gets two. The crowd is alive. A neckbreaker attempt turned into a backslide. It's great. Tenru is still fighting back, even though Jumbo has kind of reestablished his dominance here. And, and the parody that they show in trying to reverse hold for hold is great. But here it comes. We get a big backdrop driver with a bridge. And finally, Jumbo Saruta gets the three to retain the title. It's a great little match, especially in context. Tenru exits the ring and will not be seen in all Japan for a decade. Jumbo calls out Hansen after the match, and Hansen immediately answers the call. we got a big brawl in the match. Great stuff. This match, the thing that's so wonderful about it is we've got an angle at the beginning of the match. Then we have an intense send-off match, although the fans don't necessarily know it yet, for Tenru here. Jumbo gets the win to retain the title, and immediately we return to the angle with Hansen. 
it's wonderful stuff. And it's the type of thing that we don't really even see done enough these days, especially because the match, you know, would have had to be ending in a DQ because Hanson would have interfered or something like that. It's really wonderful stuff and and worth putting on the podcast. I struggled, honestly, with these last two matches on whether or not I wanted to include them. But frankly, I decided to err on the side of being exhaustive as opposed to just skimming through figure we've got the format, we've got the time, let's do it. Let's go deep. So I wanted to put a spotlight on those last two matches for that reason alone. And again, the importance of something like this interaction with Hansen pays off down the road. Like I said, Tenru wrestled what would be his final All Japan Pro Wrestling match for a decade on April 19, 1990, against his rival Saruta for the Triple Crown in a losing effort. But Tenru wouldn't exit alone. Multiple talents would jump ship to the newly created SWS, Super World of Sports. And this left Baba looking to the younger talent to answer the question, where do we go from here? Well, I can tell you where we are going from here. Back. Back to 1968. Kodansha's Bokura magazine began publishing a manga about a professional wrestler, a notorious heel wrestler in the United States. Naoto Date returned to his homeland when he received word that a young boy growing up in the same orphanage that he had once called home wanted to become a villain, just like his idol. That idol was also known as Tiger Mask. Not destined to remain only on the page, Toei Animation produced 105 television episodes between 1969 and 1971. The Tiger Mask persona became instantly recognizable due to the, well, the Tiger Mask, and the trademark high-flying moves and martial arts style. But this character would venture beyond the page and screen, right into the New Japan wrestling ring. New Japan licensed the character in the early 80s, and the legendary Satoru Sayama became the first man to don the mask. His run and feuds with the likes of Kuniaki Kobayashi, Steve Wright, Mark Rocco as the Black Tiger, and even Bret Hart added to the myth and legend of Tiger Mask. But of course, it was the very well-known series of matches with Dynamite Kid that elevated both competitors and their style to a whole new level. By 1983, however, Sayama began to tire of the gimmick and backstage politics in New Japan. He abruptly announced his retirement while arguably still on the top of the junior scene. In a twist that seemed to be straight from a comic book universe, All Japan would purchase the rights to the mask in 1984, and Baba bestowed it on a young competitor named Mitsuharu Misawa. Misawa. How does one talk about a man that could legitimately be named the greatest of all time? And even if names like Tanahashi or Okada may have eclipsed his achievements... Misawa still stands as a towering figure in professional wrestling, one whose legacy shows no signs of diminishing in spite of being gone for over a decade. I could start with dates and places, I could rehash easily found stories, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to attempt to look a little deeper. Mitsuharu Misawa grew up the second son of an abusive alcoholic, a man broken by the loss of work in an industry that often buries its employees young. A coal miner by trade, Misawa's father moved his family early as work dried up and took out his frustrations on his wife. Misawa witnessed domestic violence from an early age, including an incident wherein his father stabbed his mother with a kitchen knife. 
safety and stability were unknown quantities for young Mitsuhara Misawa. Between the threat of DV and growing up in the shadow of a favored older brother, it's easy to imagine that Misawa found few outlets for escape and fulfillment. Professional wrestling was one of those outlets. Misawa loved wrestling, pure and simple. Like so many other stories of heroes and legends of the squared circle, he grew up deeply in love with the art form. Around the time he was 13, he first became acquainted with his favorite wrestler, Horst Hoffman. He would one day pay tribute to Hoffman with his trademark emerald green tights. Now, it's hard to say whether or not Misawa was obsessed, but he certainly saw professional wrestling as his escape, his passion. Misawa yearned to be big and strong, able to fight back and protect those he loved while punishing the one who threatened his family's security and stability. Misawa's mother would divorce his father around the time Misawa turned eight, and he would, by all accounts, never speak to or see his father again. He hoped to begin training at the All Japan Dojo when he was just out of junior high. His mother and a teacher convinced him otherwise, and he began high school on a scholarship, a distinction he shared with a fellow classmate one year below him, Toshiaki Kawada. But it wasn't long before the pole of wrestling led him to consider dropping out in order to begin training. This time, though, it wasn't a parent or teacher that persuaded him to delay. It was a hero. One of the biggest stars of Japanese wrestling, Jumbo Saruta. Fate and destiny intervened to ensure that Misawa would train as an amateur first. Saruta suggested he soak up as much as possible and commit himself to becoming the best amateur he could possibly be. And that's exactly what Mitsuharu Misawa did. Misawa won the National High School Championships in 1980 when he was 18 and placed fifth in the Freestyle World Championships at the junior age. Despite these successes and the advice of Saruta, Misawa was less than thrilled to continue competing at the amateur level and simply saw it as a means to an end with the ultimate goal being professional wrestling greatness. While he had been on the path to that goal for some time, his journey could be said to have officially begun in March of 1981, when he began training with All Japan. Misawa was trained mainly by Kazuharu Sonoda and Akihisa Takechiyo. Akihisa might be better known to some as the Great Kabuki. Sonoda, unfortunately, passed away in a tragic plane crash on his way to South Africa in the early 80s, just a few months before Kinta Kobashi's debut, whom he was also training. You may recognize a few of the other names that had a hand in training Misawa. Dick Byer, better known as the Destroyer, Dory Funk Jr., Giant Baba, of course, and even Luthez. With a pedigree like that, it's easy to see how someone as committed as Misawa would succeed. He debuted in August of that same year. Early on, he was given notes after matches about his seemingly inability to sell and appear vulnerable in the ring. He struggled with both of those elements. Perhaps growing up in an environment that encouraged him to be strong and fear appearing vulnerable made it difficult for him to display weakness, even in the ring. It was, however, a lesson he learned, and his ability to elicit sympathy from a crowd due to his selling would become legendary. However, it's hard not to think about his inability to admit his own very real pain when away from the squared circle and the impact that would have on his final years. Within the first two years of his career, he was placed in a tournament for the younger lower card wrestlers, the Luthez Cup. He would make it all the way to the finals before losing to Shiro Koshinaka in a televised match. 
Misawa was already gaining popularity, and fans would chant the youngster's name, while older pundits of the sport saw him as the superior talent in spite of the loss in the tournament. Baba decided to send him on excursion to Mexico, where he became known as Kamikaze, or Kamikaze Misawa in EMLL. Misawa would capture his first taste of gold, the NWA Middleweight Championship, while in Mexico. But the stay was not destined to be a long one. Baba called him up, asked if he could jump from the corner post, and when Misawa said yes, he was booked on a flight back home to take over the famed Tiger Mask gimmick. Almost immediately, fans knew who was under the mask, perhaps due to his growing popularity prior to excursion, or Dynamite Kid unmasking the new version of his foe in a dastardly attack. He was extremely popular, but locked into a certain placement on the card, the top still being reserved for heavyweights like Baba and Jumbo and Tenru, amongst others. Still, Misawa performed his duties with aplomb. However, the high-flying, heroic style of Tiger Mask put a lot of strain on Misawa's body, most notably his knees. Even after blowing one of his knees out in 1985, he still performed in a match of the year against Kuniaki Kobayashi for the NWA International Junior Heavyweight Championship. The injury would require surgery, and Misawa would be on the shelf for more than two months following the match. Eventually, Misawa was graduated to heavyweight status by Baba, thus negating the need for such superhuman displays. Though Misawa would still utilize aerial maneuvers from time to time, the pressure was off to wrestle the Tiger Mask style. Baba and Misawa would even team up and travel to the U.S. to take part in the Crockett Cup, losing in the quarterfinals to Ron Garvin and Magnum T.A., Stan Hansen, the very next day, took him to AWA WrestleRock 86, where he notched a victory over Buck Zumhoff. Misawa spent time as Baba's partner in the World Tag League, but his role was mostly to eat the pin when they faced the star teams. He would also have his only match with NWA champion Ric Flair in 1987, a losing effort, of course. Misawa transitioned into Jumbo Saruta's tag partner, and they would win the PWF International Tag Team titles together from Ted DiBiase and Stan Hansen. After dropping the titles and coming up short in the tag league that same year, Misawa had his first match against Kawada, a tag contest he won by pinning Kawada with the Tiger Suplex. 1988 was an interesting year that saw a couple of events of note. He wrestled AWA champ Kurt Hennig to a count-out victory, but the title did not change hands. Something that was confusing to Japanese fans as titles regularly had changed hands on countouts in the past. He would also wrestle his first match with Kinta Kobashi, teaming with Jimmy Snuka to defeat the team of Kobashi and Misawa's one-time partner Ishikawa. Early in 1989, Misawa had another NWA title shot against Ricky Steamboat. Unfortunately, during the match, Misawa ruptured his ACL and would miss the rest of the year. In 1990, he would get the chance to reinvent himself and take a giant leap towards claiming his destiny. As mentioned earlier, Tenru had abruptly left all Japan and was in the process of taking quite a bit of talent with him. Baba was left with only one true native star, Jumbo Suruta. He needed a new potential ace, and he called on Misawa. Which leads us to May 14th, 1990. Tiger Mask would team with Toshiaki Kawada against Hiromichi Fuyuki in the purple tights and Yoshiaki Yatsu in the black tights. Fuyuki, as Samson Fuyuki, had been a regular tag team partner of Kawada's as Footloose, a three-time championship-winning team. Mentioned earlier in the podcast, Yatsu had been a partner of Jumbo Saruta after Saruta and Tenru broke up. 
they would win the All Japan World Tag Team titles five times as a team called the Olympics. Now look, this match is not going to win any awards, but for its sheer importance alone deserves a viewing by anyone following along. The psychology of the mask being used against Misawa is brilliant. Both Fuyuki and Yatsu grab him and pull him by the tiger mask and attack his head early on by grabbing hold of the mask and laying into him with strikes and headbutts. Finally tired of it, a double-team backdrop to Yatsu gives him the opportunity to gesture for Kawada to remove the mask. The announcers and crowd go crazy. The crowd begins chanting Misawa, the change has come. One of the most important moments in wrestling history. And I'll stand by that. Look, this match only has to exist for the unmasking. And there are some good moments, especially the mask work, but it's not a great match by any means. Important, undoubtedly, but otherwise it's just a match. Misawa would get the win on Fuyuki with a German suplex for the three in about 18 minutes. Fuyuki and Yatsu would leave All Japan for Tenru's SWS shortly after this. What do I say before our final segment? There's not much I can say. Everything. All of what I've talked about up until now has led us here. That will be true of so much that follows as the storylines begin to cement and converge, but this match... This is the true beginning of the King's Road saga. Everything up to this point has just been a prologue. The new generation emerges May 26th, 1990. You have to remember, this is less than two weeks after Misawa's unmasking. Baba knew the popularity of young guys like Misawa and Kawada from sitting in the stands and listening to the crowd's reactions. He also knew that the exodus of talent was continuing. This match, perhaps more than any other, truly sets the table for everything to come. In fact, in some ways, every other bout we've discussed thus far, as I said, is simply prelude. This is where the real story begins. This is where the all-Japan of the 1990s truly emerges. Jumbo partners with Masanobu Fuchi, the premier junior of All Japan, currently in the midst of what would be a four-year reign with the junior title, though the lack of competition certainly helped its accomplishment nonetheless. Fuchi cut his teeth alternating between feuding and teaming with a young Atsushi Onita and became the top junior in All Japan after Tiger Mask uh, elevated to heavyweight. Worth noting that he is still with All Japan to this day as co-booker. Jumbo's other partner in this bout is the great Kabuki. A fascinating character in the history of pro wrestling, Kabuki is the first wrestler to ever blow the Asian mist, and had spent a considerable amount of time in the U.S., specifically World Class, where he was managed by Gary Hart, a connection later played up by Crockett Promotions when Hart managed his kayfabe son, the great Muda. Kabuki would regularly partner with Jumbo for a few months, even winning the World Tag Team titles, but would eventually be one of the many who went to Tenru's new SWS promotion in late July. Misawa heads a team that introduces this podcast series to the final two members of the Four Pillars. We've seen Misawa and Kawada in the unmasking match. Now we meet young Kenta Kobashi and Akira Tawe. Kobashi is only two years into his astounding career, the fiery, charismatic babyface who lost his first 63 matches was a natural fit for the elevation in progress, and indeed something that Baba had low-key been planning since his debut. 
A kiritawe, perhaps the most underrated of the four pillars, if such a thing were possible, is also only a little over two years into his career. Mostly wrestling tag matches, things had been fairly unremarkable for him. Up until now, that is. He recently began to show some of that future promise in a losing effort to Tinru in a singles match just a month earlier. Kobashi, Tawe, and Misawa make their entrance first. Misawa now sporting the emerald green tights he would become associated with for the rest of his career. They get a warm welcome, but the crowd still chants Saruta's name as he enters with Kabuki and Fuchi. Kabuki's nunchaka display and mist get oohs and ahs from the crowd. Even at this stage in All Japan, he does feel slightly out of place in this match. Good reactions for the youngsters, but it, it must be said, Jumbo gets the largest ovation. Misawa's is probably second, but still far behind Jumbo's. Tawe gets a nice chant in starting the bout against Fuchi. Tawe's size certainly gives him uh, the advantage early, and he presses power. Man, Tawe throws a great drop kick, it's worth noting. Kobashi comes in and lights up the crowd with a big front drop kick from the top. Jumbo is tagged in, and we have Kobashi versus Jumbo. The camera cuts to Misawa's face. They're already begun, beginning to play up the rivalry, and, and nothing has really even happened yet. Jumbo has control, hits a huge knee on Kobashi, and then delivers elbow shots to Tawe and Misawa on the apron. Misawa runs in, but the ref cuts him off. Big Misawa chant. Misawa is tagged in, and we have the present and the future squaring off. Misawa gets chippy with knee strikes, but Jumbo fires up and hits a big lariat for a two-count. Kabuki is tagged in, and Misawa begins to outclass him immediately. Kicks him out of the ring, and then exhibits some of that old Tiger Mask style. It's important to remember that his style has yet to be refined into the Misawa that would dominate the 90s. This is only a short time removed from his time under the mask. But the difference will begin to become apparent. Tawe is tagged in, and then Kabuki and Fuchi work a double team. Fuchi hits some closed fists as the ref warns him, but Tawe fires right back, the ref warning him to keep it open. Kobashi comes in and begins pounding on Fuchi. Big body slam and a leg drop gets a two count. Masawa is back in and hits a crossbody for two. Jumbo grabs at him from the apron, and we get one of the most important spots in this match. Indeed, one of the most important moments of this whole journey. Misawa absolutely creams Jumbo with a huge elbow, and Jumbo falls to the floor and is down for quite a while. I've read this on message boards referred to as the elbow heard round the world, and it's hard to disagree with that fact. Fuchi goes for a tag, and there's a moment where he's kind of like, where's Jumbo? Kabuki comes in and absolutely mauls Kobashi as Fuchi goes out of the ring to check on Jumbo. Jumbo is hurt on the outside, and we get some more of that classic all-Japan camera work. There's an angle that shows us Jumbo down in the background being attended to by Fuchi. And it also shows us what's happening in the ring between Kabuki and Kobashi. And finally, we see on the apron Misawa and Tawe. It's just a great shot. It's cinematic. Jumbo finally gets back up. He tags in and heads straight for Misawa like a heat-seeking missile. Important spot number two, as we get a huge brawl mid-match. They basically take the time to pause the match and shoot an angle here. Jumbo and Misawa are going at it, and Misawa ends up on top, the crowd just going crazy, chanting his name. Finally, they're pulled apart as Fuchi and Kabuki attend to a bewildered Jumbo. It's a brilliant moment, followed by another, as Jumbo rushes Misawa and the brawl begins anew. Yet again, Misawa gets the upper hand. 
This sea change would, not to overuse a phrase, set the table for Misawa's whole career. Never back down, never be intimidated. The picture of toughness. The picture of toughness. Something that Misawa always thought he had to be, whether in the ring or out of the ring. You cannot help but draw the connection to his early life and growing up in an abusive home. A home filled with domestic violence run by an alcoholic patriarch who favored the older brother more than Misawa. Of course he had to be tough. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Trust me, I'm not digging too deep here. It's not that hard of a conclusion to make. But back to the match. Jumbo is hurting and crumbles to the arena floor again. As Kobashi continues to get worked over, you know, it's funny because I'm barely doing this justice. You really have to see it, but hopefully I'm providing a little more context for it. Jumbo was the towering figure of all Japan. He had been the top star or number two for over a decade at this point. No one, no one but Tenru had really challenged him for that spot. And we know how that ended up. Misawa had been like the king of the mid-card or eaten the pin for stars in big tag matches. This was his coming out in a huge way. Another brilliant thing about all this, Misawa's selling on the apron. He got rocked, too, and isn't afraid to show it. This kind of near parody still paints Jumbo as a bad motherfucker, but he got in fewer hits. You know, he still did some damage, though. Misawa had to use speed and tenacity to land more hits to win the brawl. Jumbo comes back into the ring and works over Kobashi, but Misawa runs back into the ring and begins pounding on Jumbo. Kobashi makes the tag to Tawe, and Tawe gets some time to shine, taking it to Jumbo. Just great stuff. A lariat by Tawe on Jumbo gets a near fall. Now now Kobashi gets to land some big shots on Jumbo. These chances for the younger team to showcase against the ace, the number one guy, mean a lot, and set up everything that is to come from all three. Jumbo is able to take over on Kobashi, and again, Kobashi finds himself the victim of the older team. Fuchi taking it to him, and then Kabuki. They're working over the leg, and Kobashi just plays the babyface in peril role perfectly. He hits a desperation lariat, and the crowd is all about him making the tag. Tawai gets in and takes it to Kabuki. Worth noting also is the way they work the tag ropes in this match. Now, it's clear in this moment that Misawa wanted in, but to make the tag, he would have had to drop the tag ropes. He doesn't, so Tawai is tagged in. This small bit of psychology goes a long way towards the authenticity of these matches. Misawa was holding on to the rope as the rules dictate, so he couldn't come in. Now, that also reinforces the fact that when he chooses to break the rules, well, it, it means more. Misawa finally gets in, and Kabuki's in trouble. Kobashi's back in, but Kabuki makes the tag to Saruta, and, and Jumbo tries to kill Kobashi with kicks and knees. Kobashi fights back, and the crowd is all over it. They want more Misawa and Jumbo, though. They're not going to get it yet. And that is part of the brilliance of the booking, the, the brilliance of the match layout. They know this crowd wants one thing, and, and they'll give it to him, but not yet. You have to want it more. Kobashi's leg is getting worked over by Fuchi, and then Kabuki. Finally, Tawa makes the save. Back to the tag rope thing, you know, these guys know that when they make a save, interfere, bend the rules, etc., like I was saying, it has to mean something. And the only way for that to be true is if they follow the rules the rest of the time. Jumbo is in and applies a brutal half-crab to Kobashi. Tawe is in for the save. Again, just brilliant psychology. Tawe making the save leaves Misawa open for the desperation tag from Kobashi. He's in and 
just immediately, he and Jumbo going at it again. Misawa is taking it to him with big moves. Fuchi breaks up a pin, and Misawa tags Kobashi. Kobashi runs up top, misses a big drop kick, and Jumbo hits the lariat, but Kobashi kicks out. And Jumbo is stunned. Again, so much emphasis, rightly so, is placed on Misawa and Jumbo in this match. But the whole reason that I titled this The New Generation Emerges is because all three of the younger team get moments to shine, to shock, to stun, to show the audience that you have to take these guys seriously now. And the way they do that is by putting somebody like Jumbo in there and him having to take them seriously. So he is stunned by the kickout. Kabuki's in, but Kobashi comes back and scores a series of near falls before tagging in Tawe. There's a huge lariat on Kabuki, but it only gets a two. Then a big DDT off the ropes for only two again. The crowd can sense we're in the finishing stretch, and Kabuki makes a tag to Fuchi. Atomic drop into a backdrop combo only gets a two on Fuchi, though. Kobashi is tagged in and hits a kind of springboard leg drop that looks great. A jackknife pin from Fuchi is broken up by Misawa, and he and Kobashi work the double team on Fuchi, then hit a big double drop kick on Jumbo. Again, it's not all about Misawa. Kobashi's getting a moment to shine. Tawa gets a moment to shine. It's about all three of these guys. Fuchi is knocked off the apron, and then there's a big German that gets a two count, and the crowd is at near fever pitch. Misawa is tagged in and goes for a tiger driver, but Jumbo runs in and lariats him out of his boots. Fuchi then gets a two, followed by a nice enzigiri, but Misawa rallies back, and after a short series of reversals, he hits the tiger suplex for the three count on Fuchi. Awesome stuff. The new generation is here, and the crowd chants Misawa's name. One of the most important matches ever. Misawa and Jumbo continue jawing with one another as the youngsters make their way to the back, and it's great, great stuff. Again, similarly to the last match, we're getting the angles that so often these days play out backstage or in a moment where a guy takes to the ring with a microphone within the match itself. The storytelling is the match. The storytelling is what happens in the ring. And that is what makes this King's Road style to me so fascinating and so interesting. It goes beyond all the talking. Now, yes, there's interview segments that happen backstage after matches. Of course there are. There are things that get said, but it's different because the storytelling, the emphasis is placed on what happens in the ring. The moments that they have when Jumbo is just kind of clearly pissed off and kind of jawing with Misawa and Misawa walking with his back turned to him and then turning around, looking towards the ring and and saying things. You don't need to understand the language to know what they're saying, what they're talking about, what it is developing between these two. It's that level of storytelling, that level of storytelling that I have come to appreciate so much from this particular era. And it's something that we see more and more and more as the years go on. And to this day, it's something that we can see in wrestling rings, not all the time and not from all companies, but it's one of the things that I think drew so many people to New Japan, for instance, a few years back. It's something that's been very um, typical of what they were able to do in the ring with Okada and Tanahashi and Omega and, and, and their runs and those matches together, the storytelling that they had interior as opposed to anything exterior, the intrinsic wrestling, as opposed to these extrinsic sort of mic moments or backstage vignettes. Anyway, 
It's a shame that this six man doesn't get mentioned in the same rarefied air as others will down the line. It may be lacking in some of the technical merit and spectacular, cohesive storytelling, but frankly, its sheer importance and the fact that so much is built out of this, this is the genesis of the next chapter of all Japan history, and it makes it required viewing. And that will bring chapter two of King's Road to a close. Next up, we're going to take a slight detour to focus on the Gaijin competitors of All Japan, Stan Hansen, Steve Williams, and Terry Gordy in particular. The roles they played and will play are crucial to our story and help to set up so much of where the King's Road goes next. One element in particular will be vital connective tissue to the first single meetings uh, of Jumbo and Misawa. I look forward to bringing you Chapter 3 of The King's Road, a 90s all-Japan retrospective soon. In the meantime, I want to take this opportunity to once again thank Hisami for some valuable pieces of information and research material, Matt Charlton for support, inspiration, and connections, The Ditch, again, for helping to spark this passion over 20 years ago, and countless wiki articles and message boards for helping to fill in the blanks, add context, and provide content. Any mistakes are purely my own. I look forward to having the opportunity to continue this conversation, and in order to do so, please find me on Twitter at KOPW72. In spite of the new name for the podcast, I'm not going to change the Twitter handle just because I want people to be able to find me if they're listening to old episodes. So at KOPW72 will remain the Twitter handle for this podcast. Any questions you might have, any criticisms, any errors that you wish to point out, please feel free to throw them my way. Again, I want to learn and grow and make sure that I'm putting out the the best information possible. I also want to point you to the show notes for this episode, as you will find, much like I had in the first episode, the missing pieces. There are some important moments that I can't necessarily capture in the context of the whole podcast, and seeking to try to keep these episodes under an hour, there are elements that I might choose to edit out. Um, but I, I also want to be able to point you in the direction of finding more information. In particular, with this episode, I'm going to include some more extensive notes about SWS and its formation and Tinru's decision to leave, as well as a little background information on Horst Hoffman for those that might not be familiar with him. He's kind of a name that, frankly, other than folks that are attracted to Misawa or know a bit about Britress, he, he gets a little left out, lost in the shuffle. So I'd like to provide a little more context on him in particular. Other than that, we have finished our next little leg of the King's Road. And I'm really looking forward to bringing you Chapter 3 sooner rather than later. Again, I felt like when I put Chapter 1 out, I established a bit of a trust with the audience. And I want to fulfill that. I want to make sure that, that we finish this journey. It might be a long one. I was charting it out a couple of nights ago and looking at all I want to cover and how I might want to cover it. And this could be a series that takes us more than a year to get through as long as I post regularly. Now, of course, considering you had to wait almost a year to get the second chapter, that might seem overly ambitious. But I am committed to bringing you the full scope of 1990s All Japan and maybe more. There's lots of places that we could go after that, and I definitely want to explore it. 
Again, please hit me up on Twitter at KOPW72. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, make sure you hit that subscribe button or the follow button or the like button or whatever you might need to hit. Toss me a review. Let me know what you think. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Kings Road Pro Wrestling very soon. Uh, Our next episode will probably not be Chapter 3, but Chapter 3 should be out within the next uh, two weeks. So keep an eye out for that. I'll definitely keep you updated with progress on Twitter. So give me a follow over there if you want to keep up to date on everything. Also, I wanted to just reinforce... At Shining Wizard DS, Matt Charlton, give him a follow. Uh, at Hisami H-I-5-A-M-E on Twitter, uh, give her a follow. Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably already follow both of those people, but just in case. Also, make sure you check out Phil Singer Games, philsingergames.com, for all your tabletop wrestling gaming needs. Uh, you're seriously not going to have more fun with some cards and dice than you can have with this game if you're a wrestling fan. There's an online component, too, which simulates the tabletop experience. I highly recommend it. It's how I mostly play. Um, there are uh, lots of uh, legendary wrestlers included in the game. Uh, there's uh, an independent wrestling line which covers all of today's indies, uh, including Ring of Honor um, and IWTV promotions. Then they also have, of course, the Champions of the Galaxy line, which is sort of your sci-fi comic book inspired line. Just great stuff. Uh, a ton of fun. Galacticon, which is their big... Um, convention that takes place every year will be coming up this July and uh, I will be hosting that uh, as well as continuing to host Roll Up, the official Phil Singer Games podcast, which you can find uh, wherever you get your podcasts or go to philsinger.coms, hit the little podcast tab and you will see it pop up with the latest episode embedded right there on the site for your listening pleasure. Uh, We talk about the game obviously but we also talk about some of the talent in the game. We talk to the creators, uh, fans uh, and everything in between. You know, trying to cover as much as we possibly can. Also want to give a big shout out to the Legends of Wrestling team and their podcast, Uncharted Territory. They have an excellent podcast going covering a myriad of subjects that go even beyond the game itself. Their latest podcast is actually about the uh, Major League Baseball season. Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, go Cubs. Actually, I don't know how good they're going to do this year, but that's okay. Um and uh, I also wanted to uh, make sure that you check their podcast out because in addition to uh, game-related content and, of course, some non-game-related content, they talk a lot about the legends of wrestling and some of their experiences dealing with uh, some of these folks, uh, whether it be somebody like Thunderbolt Patterson or um, Baron Von Raschke, uh, numerous others. There's some great stories that they have, um, both from firsthand stories, uh, stories that they've been told, uh, experiences you know, going to the matches when they were young and seeing classic AWA or WWE. WF. Um, just a great bunch of guys. Uh, I, I really have a lot of respect and appreciation for them. Corey, Chad, Tim, and Stu. Uh, great group. And if you've ever purchased a Legends of Wrestling product from Phil Singer Games, then you are purchasing their content because they're the the creative minds behind the card stats and bios and everything that goes into that. Um, I, I cannot speak highly enough of them. Uh, and again, they, they deserve your ears. So go check out Uncharted Territory. Um, it's a great podcast that I really enjoy listening listening to. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there to listen to and watch. Um, I want to give a shout out again to IWTV. They've been producing some really wonderful, well, hosting rather, some really wonderful content that's been produced by promotions like Action, Limitless Wrestling, Paradigm Pro, AIW, Southern Underground Pro, uh, just some wonderful stuff in WrestleMania week. They had some incredible shows on there. Have fun, be sad. It's probably one of my favorite independent wrestling shows that I have ever seen, period. So go check that out. Um, get your subscription. Wrestlers like Lee 
Moriarty, Daniel Garcia, um, just some incredible talents. Uh, J.D. Drake, uh, I, I really can't speak highly enough of some of the talent that gets showcased uh, on IWTV. And if you like your deathmatch stuff, they've got some incredible deathmatch stuff on there as well. So uh, go check them out. Big shout out to them. All right, I'm going to get out of here. That's that's enough of uh, uh, of me. So thank you so much for your for your listenership. Thank you for your encouragement and your support along the way. Uh, I really do appreciate it, and I, I really again I, I want this to be as much of a conversation as possible. So um, let me know what you think. Let me know what your experience has been with uh, Kings Road Wrestling. Let me know you know when you first saw these matches. Uh, is it your first time watching these matches? Have you been a fan for 20 years plus? You know, like me, or or is this something? that you've just come to in the past few years. What are you watching now? Uh, you know, I've been watching some Dragon Gate and some All Japan recently. Um, Champion Carnival started. Uh, I'm pulling for uh, Jake Lee. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's some cool stuff happening in Dragon Gate. Um, they've, they've had a little bit of... Uh, it's, I take that back. There's, it's been a bit up and down for them recently. But they had an awesome 2019. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of playing catch up on some of the stuff that they that they did in 2019. But uh, I know that the, the past six months or so have been a little shaky, but there's still been some really good stuff happening for them as well. Um, so yeah, uh, let me know what you're watching. Let me know what you're enjoying. Let me know what you're reading. Uh, I'm reading Tuesday Night at the Gardens by Jim Cornette and Mark James. Excellent book. Uh, I also picked up the uh, Mid-Atlantic Yearbook 1975 from Mid-Atlantic Gateway. Uh, Tuesday Night at the Gardens can be purchased at MemphisWrestlingHistory.com. Uh, big shout out to Tim Hornbaker's Master of the Ring, uh, the Buddy Rogers biography. It's a great book. Uh, I've been reading that as well. Um, just so much. There's so much content out there. There's so much. It's hard to keep track of sometimes. But uh, one of the things that I always want to try to do is, you know, push you in the direction of whatever's interesting me or intriguing me at the moment. And, you know, hopefully uh, I'll gain some credibility because people will, will like what I've kind of nudged them towards. Uh, all right. All right. For real. I'm getting out of here now. Thank you so much. Everyone take care of yourselves in the meantime. It's been a very hard year. We are starting to come out of it. We don't need to rush anything, though. We can get there. We can get there together. We don't have to languish. We don't have to be depressed. We can find what makes us happy. And one of the things I know that makes me happy is doing this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care of yourselves in the meantime. And I'll talk to you again real soon. Mm-hmm.